finish. There we go. That's, that's important. That's, it's all about how we finish. Uh, you know, I've never been one for fishing. Uh, I'm not patient enough. I can't sit still enough. I get bored very quickly. Anytime I've been fishing, it's been so unsuccessful. Um, I might as well have just been given warm swimming lessons. That should have been what I called it because nobody got anything else out of the entire trip. Of course, that's not true for everyone who goes fishing. I'm sure you've heard the story about Paddy and Murphy who were walking down a country road and they observed a man hanging over their bridge and in his arms he was dangling another man over the edge. And as they walked past, they heard the man saying, pull me up, pull me up, pull me up. And as the man pulled him up, the man had caught with his bare hands a huge big fish. Paddy and Murphy looked at each other and thought, wow, we need to try that. So they walk on down the road, come to another bridge, and Paddy dangles Murphy over the bridge, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits. 45 agonizing minutes as he's holding his friend over the bridge. Pull me up, pull me up. Have you caught a fish? No, there's a train coming. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I, I'm sorry, sorry. Let's go fishing with Jesus. I think it will be a different experience. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, or the lake of Galilee, the, the lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. I love this idea. We mentioned it last uh, Sunday night. I love this thought that people were so hungry to hear Scripture that they press in to hear the Word of God. They want to hear the, the Bible explained. They want to hear more. They're hungry for it, and so they were pressing in. But it was a wee bit of crowd control because as the people at the back were kind of pushing in to see what was happening, because it's not like a lot of churches now where they fill in from the back. Look at those ones there along the back wall there, you know. Disaster, absolute disaster. Uh, Bold anything just waving at me. Uh, but... but they were pushing in and pushing in. They were trying to get to the front. And the crowd were pushing in around Jesus. And he's finding himself naturally being pushed back until his sandals touch the water. And all of a sudden he realizes, I need to change strategy here. He has a crowd problem, so he has an idea. Verse 3, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So imagine, Peter and some of the other fishermen, uh, Simon, Peter that is, he, he, he's maybe knee deep in the water, and he, he's sorting out his boat. He's just come in from a long night of fishing. They fished at nighttime. And so he's just coming in. He's shattered. He's exhausted. They haven't caught anything. He, he, he's fed up. And, and so he, he's washing the nets, and he sees the crowd. He's not all that bothered. He wants to finish up his shift. He wants to go home. And then he asks Peter, says, as he climbs in, give me a wee shove out here. And uh, this gives Jesus a natural amphitheater effect that will magnify his voice. If you imagine the Sea of Galilee, it's very flat, but then all around it, there's this gentle sort of slope up the shore. And so then as Christ speaks, there's the people gathered on the shoreline, and he's got this natural, uh, like a lecture theater kind of uh, setup going and as I picture Peter, 
this isn't in the Bible, but here, here's how I imagine it. I imagine that as he's watching his net, he's standing along, he's not all that bothered. And he thinks, well, I might as well, maybe he'll give me a couple of shekels if I do this. So he says, right, fine, come on. And he's out maybe now waist deep into the water and he's holding the boat still so it doesn't float off into the middle of the sea because he wants to keep his boat safe. And so he's holding on to it. Maybe he, he, he starts working at his net still, and he's still sort of footing along at things. And I imagine then he starts to slowly get more and more engrossed in what this random person is saying. Uh, at the start, he's maybe not all that bothered. He wasn't part of the crowd initially. He's getting on with his job. But now he's starting to tune in more and more and more to what this man is saying. And when Jesus had finished speaking, he turns to this fisherman who's waist deep in water. He said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. We're not told what Jesus was preaching on. We've no idea what he was preaching on. But whatever it was, even though Peter was one of the workers just holding the boat, it was a message that Jesus wanted Peter to hear. He singles Peter out. He singles his boat out. He gets him alongside because he knows that God has a plan for Peter. He knows that his father is going to use Peter mightily, so he singles him out and he gets him alongside. It's an important principle for all of us here who serve in the church, no matter what capacity we serve in. Because sometimes we can be here just because we're on the road. And say, well, actually, you know what? If somebody else was on, I probably wouldn't have been here tonight. But my name was on the supper, or my name was on the door, or it was my turn to do the sound desk, or whatever it happens to be. And says, so okay, I'm here. And we could go through all the different, maybe, teams and things that go on. And sometimes even in a prayer meeting before our, our, our service, we might say something like, Lord, help them to respond to God's word. Help them to, to hear what you have to say to them. Open up their hearts. Show them what they need to apply. And all this time we're talking about them. We're here to help them. We're here to help the church. We're here to do our job for them, for the church. But them is not them. Them is us. It's, it, it's not separate like that. We're not here by accident. We're not here just because it's our turn, because we're on the team or we're on the road. Jesus wants you to hear this message as well as anyone else. So before you start thinking, well, I'm only here because it's my turn to be here, so I hope all these people listen up. No. Peter was using a guy who was there, who was working, but he had him lined up because he wanted him to hear the message. And, you know, he wants me to hear this message as well, um, as much as anyone else. In fact, I'm convinced one of the reasons why God has called me to be a preacher is because I need to hear the Word of God more often than anyone else in this room. Um, you know, I've never missed a single one of my sermons. And that's a grueling task. But the Lord knows that I need to hear it. I need to hear it. I, I has to be reinforced in my heart and my life constantly. 
And so Jesus turns to the man who was helping him minister, the one who just happened to be on shift, whose, whose turn it was at that point. And he says, Peter, hold the boat. Don't go away. I need you to hear this message because this is going to be the message that changes your life. And then he speaks directly to Peter and gives him a command that makes absolutely zero sense. Go out, put your nets out into the deep, catch some fish. See, in Galilee, as I said, the best fishing is at nighttime. The, the Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles by about seven miles wide. The, the middle of the lake is about 140 feet or so. During the day, that's where all the fish go. They, they're down deep. They're out of the way. The, fish, the fishing boats and, and the nets that these men were using 2,000 years ago, they, they were in no danger, the fish. The fish were, were, were too deep for the nets to reach. But at nighttime, when it was darker, when it was quieter, the fish would have came along to the shoreline and that's when they would eat, and that's whenever they would sort of be sort of more easy to catch. And so the fishermen fished at nighttime. But Jesus is preaching in the morning. They're washing their nets. They've just come in. It's bright. There's no fish along the shore. They're not going to be able to go out to the deep. They're not going to be able to catch fish when they get there. It makes zero sense to this fisherman says, listen, we know what we're doing and then get there. But what you're asking us to do, it doesn't even make sense. Go to the place where we know the fish are not because <laughs> there's no way we're going to catch them with our nets. Peter, being a fisherman, understands us. Master, which in itself is intriguing, tells me he's already begun to respect Jesus. But he could have easily said, you're an idiot. I would have followed you until you came out with something stupid like that. I can't trust a man who knows nothing about the basics of fishing. But he doesn't say that. What he says is, that doesn't work. But because you've said it at your word, I'll let down the nets. I don't know why you would ask me to do such a daft thing. I don't know, Jesus, why you'd ask me to do something that makes no sense. I don't know why you'd ask me to do something that seems totally illogical that no one else will do. But hey, listen, if you said it, I'll do it. It's a really interesting principle, that, isn't it? God, I don't know, I don't know, I don't understand why you're asking me to do the things that you're asking me to do. God, I don't know why you're asking me to go through this, this period of my life that you're asking me to go through. God, I don't know why you've, you've taken this relationship away from me. I don't know why you've given me this other relationship. I don't know why all these things are happening. But uh, if it's your word, I'm good with it. If this is what you're telling me that I have to do, if this is where you're telling me that I have to go, I'm going to go because I trust your word. Peter could have said, Jesus, just stick to the preaching. That's what you're good at. Let me stick with the fishing. 
but he submits to the command. Now, verse 6, when he, they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking, and they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. There's so much they needed help. Everyone needs help in ministry. Everyone needs help alongside. These guys, even though God was blessing them, if they didn't have other people around them to help, they would have been pulled under. It's important as a church we help take the strain off each other and we help get alongside each other. But even with that, they were overflowing. It was almost too much for them. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knee saying, depart from me. Not because you're too much or because because I realize who I am before. I'm a sinful man. Oh, Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they, all these men, left everything and followed him. It's a real-life parable, a real-life metaphor. Jesus is preaching a little quick sermon now just to Peter. He's commissioning him to a greater work. If at my word, if you're prepared to trust me, I can do this with fish, imagine what else I can do. That's, that's the metaphor, and it's one that will continue on throughout this chapter. If I was able to do that, imagine what else I can do. I've given you my word, and against logic, and against reason, against everything that you think you understand about this world that you're living in, you just made a fortune. Look at the fish you caught. You've never caught as many fish as you have right now. Stick with me, Peter. Stick with me, Simon, uh, and you are in for a great ride, a great journey. But, but instead of catching fish, you're going to be a fisher's man. Imagine what we can do if we chased after people's lives and people's hearts instead of just fish. And Peter left everything to follow Jesus. Peter was in for a journey. Peter was in for an adventure. Up to this point, all that he knew was the shoreline of Galilee. All he knew was this little uh, bit of land, this little bit of water. Okay, yeah, maybe he was up in Jerusalem for a couple of times a year or for, for a feast or a festival, but his livelihood was wrapped up in Galilee. That was his world, but now he's going to catch man. And true to Jesus' word, what happened at the, sea of, uh, at, on the day of Pentecost 3,000 fish were caught at the start of the church. People who give up everything to follow Christ are in for a journey of a lifetime. And Jesus summons Peter and the other guys to leave their earthly occupation and to follow him. Now, that was not typical. Typically, what would happen is it's a part-time thing. But you're not allowed to just, a rabbi just doesn't go, hey, follow me. What happens is if there's a teacher around and you say, I really like that teacher, I like his course, I like his classes, like, like school today, you apply. You go to the rabbi and say, look, listen, I would really love to be one of your disciples. Is that okay? And normally the rabbi would say, sure, here's how much it will cost. 
I'm not giving away this knowledge for nothing. It'll cost you to be one of my disciples. And so the rabbis would love and prefer it if the, their disciples had part-time jobs, that they were able to keep up with their income so that they could keep up with his lifestyle. But here Jesus is doing the picking. He's going up to men in full-time work and saying, guys, drop everything, follow me, and I'll provide the lifestyle for you. I'll provide for you. This was not a typical teaching situation. He wants their complete attention. He doesn't want this half-hearted, half-focused kind of following. He says, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to come after the Son of Man, I need your complete attention. I need your complete devotion. I don't need a half-hearted servant. I need someone who is committed completely to me. And for three, four years, he's going to teach these men to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. He's going to train them up in that period of time, and then he's going to release them so they were to follow him. They were to follow him. What does it mean to follow Jesus whenever you are one of the disciples? Well, it means that they followed him. It's a very literal thing. It meant that if he walked over there, right, well, all the disciples walked over there. If he went into that town over there, okay, let, let's go. We, we go. If, he, if he's going there, we, we, let, yeah, we go there. They literally followed him everywhere. They followed him. They watched him. They listened to him. And then as they're teaching, he began to say, okay, now you go into that town. I'm going to send you out in pairs. I'm going to send you out to do this. And he starts to work. They were not to be half-hearted saying, look, actually, I, I need to be back at the boat here to start fishing. So I, I can't go out, but I'll, I'll come back later. That wasn't going to work for Jesus with these men. He says, no, I need fully committed followers. Folks, there's too many Christians in the churches across Northern Ireland who are half-hearted followers of Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying, okay, everyone has to quit their job. I'm not saying that. That's not the, the takeaway here. What I'm saying is that we're trying to do so many other things with our lives that we've forgotten what our real priority is. And we can miss so much of what Jesus is trying to show us and where he's trying to lead us. Because he's saying, look, I need you to follow me. I need you to come with me. I need you to see the thing that I'm going to do here. And I need you to come with me here because I'm going to show you something here. I need you to see it. And we're, but we're too busy doing so many other things. And like any students who don't do the work or any students who don't show up to their classes... When the tests come, they're going to struggle. And so many Christians struggle because we've been half-heartedly doing this thing. We don't know exactly what God has been trying to show us. We don't know what God's been trying to say to us. We don't know with certainty or with clarity because we're so busy with everything else. Peter could have said, Jesus, no thanks. 
But listen, any time you're back near the Sea of Galilee, call over, touch base. I'd love to give you a free fish. I'd love to give you a nice meal. Come around to my house. Come, come and spend some time with my wife and my family. I'd love to meet with you again, but I'm comfortable here. I, 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 I could serve you from here. I could follow you from a distance. I could do so, but I'll take the friendship. I just don't want the cost of walking away from everything else that I'm doing. I don't want the cost of discipleship. There are six stages, as far as I can see, of discipleship. Six stages of any real discipleship. First is, I'll do it. Stage two, I'll do it and you watch. Stage three, I'll do it and you help me. Stage four, you do it and I'll help you. Stage five, you do it, I'll watch. Stage six, you can do it. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That was the journey that the disciples went on. They watched him, they heard him, they'll help him, and later on they'll be commissioned by him. Discipleship that is simply someone who's doing Bible studies is not discipleship. That is stage two at best. Where somebody's doing something and, and people are watching or listening in. Discipleship is a doing. Now, something else I want to point out here is that they caught so many fish. They were struggling so, with so many of the fish. Uh, and they've never caught so many. These two boats are nearly sinking because of the weight of the fish. And then Jesus says, okay, there's the fish. Leave that. Leave it. Come follow me. Just leave it there. All that money that this represents, all the income and security that this, that this uh, catch uh, represents, leave it. How much would it have been easier to say, Jesus, let me go sell the fish. And then we can start and we'll have a nice baseline to work with. We'll have something that we can use. We've got something that we can do. That's not what happens. He says, okay, now that things are never going better for you than they've ever been before, now that you're at your peak level in business, walk away from it. Follow me. This isn't one of those scenarios that a lot of people find themselves in where they're saying, oh, you know, my business isn't doing too well. I'll maybe go into full-time ministry. Or, oh, you know, this, this, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do with my life. I'll maybe just go to Bible college, all right? And trust me, I was at Bible college. It's filled with people who didn't know what they were supposed to be doing with their lives. So they just decided to go to Bible college. It happens. But this is not what Jesus is doing here. He's called them into ministry whenever everything else is, would easily convince them to stay where they are. There's always a reason to not follow God. There's always some sort of justification to saying, look, it's not the right time. I'm going to do it some other time. It's not, not now. I've got so many things to focus on. Things are going well here. I need to see this through. I need to do this. I need to do this. I need to do this.
and they choose Jesus over the payday. They choose Christ over the comfort that that revenue would bring them. They chose to follow the one who commands the fish rather than simply settling for the fish. And they choose the giver over the gift. Folks, how often do we spiritualize chasing after the gifts? Oh, God's blessing, I should stay here. Maybe. But sometimes we're just too focused on the gifts and not the giver. Verse 12. Um, While Jesus was in one of the cities, there was a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now again, Dr. Luke is saying you don't just have leprosy, you are full of leprosy. And so he's just given that wee bit more information. This is someone who has advanced Hansen's disease, as we would call it now. It comes from a bacteria called Mycobacterium leprae. It begins as small spots on the body, but eventually it engulfs the entire nervous system. And sometimes it can take um, your, your eyesight. It, it can take uh, your, your fingers and your appendages, your arms, fingers, toes. You can be left with just stumps without feeling. And, and we're, Tommy mentioned leprosy this morning. and says, yeah, it's, it's incurable, or at least it was in this time. And at a time when then you need your support, when you need people around you to comfort you, you imagine someone now today being told, listen, you've got an incurable disease. What's the first thing you want? You want people to gather around you, to lift you up, to support you, to pray for you, to at least just hug you and say, listen, we're here. We'll try and make these la- this last period of time the best that it can be. But if you're familiar with the Old Testament, Leviticus 13, 14, is where it talks about the rules about leprosy. And so if you have some sort of skin irritation, you have to take it to the priest. He examines it. And, and then after a couple of days, you come back and he examines it again. And if he determines that you have leprosy, what you have to do is you have to leave. If you got this diagnosis of Henson's disease, you're out. You have to shave your head. You have to live in exile. And you have to then just... Step back from civilization. Anytime anyone comes near you, unclean, unclean. In other words, stay away. You can't, it's not safe for you to be around me. Leave. By Luke telling us that this man is full of leprosy, he's not just telling us about his physical condition. He's telling us that this man has emotional scars. He's got psychological scars. And they're as painful as his physical ones. You have to tear your clothes. You have to leave your family. You have to leave your friends. You have to leave your, your, fr- your friends and your, everything that you know, everything you care about. You have to separate yourself. This man's maybe done this for a long, long time. You're not allowed to have fellowship with anyone. That causes scars as well. But you can't allow the infection to spread. So when this man sees Jesus, the law is very clear. He was supposed to say, unclean, 
stay away. You can't be here. You can't be in my presence because I'm too dirty. I'm too broken. I'm too sick. That's the language that they were inferring. But instead, he comes to Jesus, and he bows down low, and whatever way he was able to do it, depending on it, his head would have been touching the ground, and as low as he could go, Master, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Verse 13, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. I can guarantee you that as everyone saw that, they all just sucked there. Because <gasps> the one thing that you do not do is touch the leper. The one thing you do not do is touch this man who's got the infectious disease, the incurable, life-threatening, infectious disease. The one thing you don't do. Say, walking into parts of Africa a couple of years ago when they had the Ebola crisis. That, that is the same level of infection and just walking up to the guy and touching him. You don't do it. And he said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. I love this reinteraction. I think it's so, so good. As soon as Jesus touches them, they are healed. Now, what must that have been like for that leper who has not had physical contact with anyone, maybe for years? And for Jesus to reach out and maybe put his hand, his head in his hands and say, I will. I want that to happen. I want you to be free from this. And I think it's so compassionate and so typical of who Christ is. But it's more than just sympathy. This is so awesome because anyone other than Jesus does this, the leper doesn't get better. What happens is the person who touches them gets sick because that's how bacteria works. That's how disease works. That's how, in the kind of simple language of the ancient Jews, it's how being unclean works. You touch something that is unclean, you touch something that is dirty, you become unclean. You become infected. You become uh, contaminated. Think of putting a nice clean toddler in a pile of mud. What happens? Right, well, the baby doesn't make the mud clean. The mud makes the baby dirty because that's how dirt works. But Jesus, 
instead of becoming unclean, instead of, of sharing in the uncleanness, imparts his cleanliness onto the leper. And instead of becoming dirty, he becomes clean. So God can make the unclean clean. He gives them right standing before God. He gives them the ability to go and be part of the family of Israel again. He gives them the chance to stand in the temple and worship. That's what is happening here. This is a bigger picture when no one else can help, when no one else could even come close to helping you, when you feel lost in sin and lost all around you and you feel like everyone around you, you're just bringing them down and sucking them down. Christ can make you clean. Such is his holiness, such is his power, such is his might. You can't make him impure. You can't drag him down. Rather, he lifts you up. He makes you clean and he sets. This is what sets him apart from everyone else. Listen, Jesus didn't have to touch him at all to heal him. He could have simply said, yeah, I will be clean. And that would have been the power of God on display. But he reaches out and he touches him to show not only the holiness of God in action, to be able to make someone pure, but it's also to show the tender-hearted compassion of God. And we have both these things in action. Sometimes we like to think, oh, okay, Old Testament God, angry. New Testament God, loving. I want to say, God is not one or the other. He is both these things all the time. God is holy and just and incredibly compassionate and loving all at the same time. And here we see this. We see the holiness of God that, that he makes a sinner, he makes the leper clean. But the compassion that he would reach out and touch him in the first place. And so it makes me wonder, why does he tell this man, look, don't tell anyone about this. Don't tell him about what's happened to you. Because could you imagine? The man goes back to his home and his wife is maybe in poverty now because there's been no income. His kids maybe are, are out begging on the streets. And he walks in and goes, hi, honey, I'm home goes, you can't be here. You can't stay here. You're unclean. You're a leper. And he goes, actually, no, I'm not. Look, I've got my fingers. I can see. I, I can walk. I can do a wee jig. I can do a wee dance. I'm not a leper anymore. How did that happen? I'm not allowed to say. No, no, no. You don't get to be away from this family for years and years and years and then just walk back in here and say, I'm better now. How did this happen? Well, actually, no, Jesus told me I'm not allowed to say. That's a very strange thing. And I don't think we would blame the man for actually telling a few people along the way. I couldn't contain it. But why did Jesus do it? A couple of reasons. First of all, I don't think he wanted people to be attracted to him to just get healed. He didn't want just people to fixate on the immediate. It's the wrong motivation. A lot of people tried to come to God and say, okay, look, listen, uh, if, if you make my uh, mom better or if you make my kid better, I, I promise we'll go to church every day. Uh, and we're coming to God because we want them to do something physical and immediate. That's the wrong motivation. 
There's a lot of people who want to follow Jesus because they want something from him. And it's all about the gift rather than the giver. So he doesn't want to send out that message where he says, like, I'm here to give out free lunches to everyone and free healings. That's the wrong motivation. He wants people to be in love with God. He wants people to be passionately devoted to him. The other reason I think Jesus wanted this to be this way, and perhaps the more profound reason, is that already the religious elite are starting to sniff around Jesus. They're already suspicious of him. They're already jealous of him. And he doesn't want to attract the attention too much before the right time. Jesus is very concerned and is very conscious in Scripture about the appointed time, the right time. God's timing is always very important. Now, eventually, Jesus will get enough negative press that will take him to the cross. What takes him, humanly speaking, to the cross is the jealousy of the Jewish leadership. But it's not the time to have that kind of press yet. And so he says, don't tell anyone, but go to the priest. Make an offering. What he's saying is, back in Leviticus 14, I think it is, there's a procedure. If you think you've got cured from leprosy, go back to the priest who diagnosed you. Show that, show that you're clean. Let him make a ruling. And if he can declare it, it's official. And then you make a sacrifice. Give thanks to God for the healing. And effectively what Jesus is doing is he's given the leadership his business card. He's given the leaders his business card. He's saying, listen, listen, priest, you know there hasn't been a leopard cured, at least from what we can tell in Scripture, since the days of Elijah. Mark the day. There's a change in the atmosphere. There's a change in the climate. There's something happening. And he's giving his business card out. And so in verse 15, he tells the guy who gets healed, don't keep it to yourself. I don't blame him for that. But the crowds get too much. Verse 16, he goes off to a mountain by himself. 17, on one of those days, he was teaching. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there and who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal and, to, and behold some men. Now, Mark's gospel uh, tells us that there were four men, four friends, we're bringing, uh, we're bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Now, if this was a Jewish house, there'd be no tiles. They had a flat roof. Uh, and it was just made of the sort of the mud bricks. This tells me two things. It tells me it was a Greek-style house which tells me that whoever's house this was, was that it was not a small house, it was a fancy house, it was an expensive house. Now, I don't know what his relationship was with Jesus, whether he was a believer, whether he was just interested in having the next up-and-coming guy in his house, I don't know. But you imagine the conversation. He says to his wife, darling, we're going to have a group of people over today. This Jesus is going to come over with his disciples. We're going to have a barbecue for them. We're going to have a nice little party for them. We're going to get to know them a wee bit better and hear what they have to say. We're going to find out what they're all about. 
then all of a sudden there's these swarms of people descending on the house and Mrs. whatever her name is says, oh man, I didn't know it was going to be this kind of a crowd. How are we going to fit them all in? And then there's a wee bit of dust falling on it. It goes, what, what's going on? And then all of a sudden there's daylight <laughs> and the roof opens up. Great. I try to make room for Jesus into my house and my house gets vandalized. Well, that's just great. And these guys are trying to get this friend into the house. I love these four friends. I I love them to bits. They must have heard his sermons. They must have heard a wee bit about the miracles because they have this one consuming thought in their heads. We need to get our friend to Jesus. He can fix his problems. We got to get this guy to Jesus. Those are real friends. A real friend will spare no expense and will go to any lengths that they can to make sure their friends get to Jesus. I don't care about the inconvenience. I don't care if it rubs other people up the wrong way. My only job today is to get this guy to Jesus. What I also like about these guys is that I can relate to them. They don't like crowds. I I don't like crowds either. I hate queues. Ruth will tell you, you want to push my buttons? Drop me in uh, the Continental Market coming up to Christmas time with all the people. It's like, this this is my space. Leave me alone. I'm just this guy who's kind of just looking at people. Who brings a pram in? And then it's like, oh, Ruth's in. That's our pram. It's our children in there. It's It's just... So I like these guys because they're thinking, we need a shortcut. Is there a way that we can get around the crowds? Is there a way that we can avoid everyone else and get to where we need to go quicker? So they find the roof. Now notice this, and I'm setting all this up because the man needed to be healed, but nothing is said about his faith. In fact, we've no idea if this man responds to Jesus really at all. But here is what happens. Jesus looks at the friends. And because of the faith of the friends, he turns to the man who's paralyzed. Your sins are forgiven. I'll hear people all the time saying, well, you know, the reason that they're not healed, the reason why your prayers haven't been answered is because you don't have enough faith. When I hear people like God speaking, I say, right, well, let's use some of your faith. And if you're so overflowing with faith, let's use a wee bit of your faith. Because that's what happened here. You see, their faith, they believed if they could get their friend to Jesus, it says nothing about the paralyzed man's faith. He didn't have any, we can assume, But they did. And Jesus responds to their faith. And so he says to him, man, your sins are forgiven. And you know what I think the four friends responded whenever he heard Jesus say that? They went, huh? That's not why we're here, Jesus. (laughs) We're here for the the fixy leg. We want you to fix the legs. We're here for, we want you to say you're, 
Your faith has, been, has cured you. Not your sins are forgiven. But Jesus didn't say that. He says your sins are forgiven. Why? Because that was the greatest need. His greatest need is not physical healing. He'll get to that. He'll address that in time. But the man's greatest need was forgiveness of his sin. The greatest need any person has is the forgiveness of their sin. And the thought among some of the ancient Jews is that a person's sickness is often related to their sin. And so maybe they thought, well, this man's a terrible sinner. If you remember the book of Job, one of Job's friends, one of the comforters was uh, Eliphaz the Temanite. Do you remember Eliphaz the Temanite? He comes along and says, well, I mean, who being innocent ever perished? In other words, listen, if you were so innocent, Job, none of this would be happening to you. If you were really so pure, trust me, you'd still have your family. You'd still have your health. Now, of course, God comes in at the end of the book and slams them all for their wrong thinking. That is wrong thinking. But Jesus dealt with this man because his sin was his greatest need. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees are bouncing at this, rightly so. If Jesus were any other man, this is blasphemy. This is, this is the worst thing that anyone can say. How dare he say he can forgive sins? Only God has the right to forgive sins. And we agree with the, the scribes and the Pharisees with this. Absolutely. But then they're assuming that Jesus is only a man. And you go through many different other religions and cults and different things. And they'll maybe all mention someone called Jesus, but they'll have always different ideas about who he is. The Jehovah's Witnesses were at our door uh, Tuesday, Wednesday. You know, they think Jesus used to be the Archangel Michael. And the resurrection wasn't a literal one. He didn't really come back to life in a bodily sense. But he did come back a second time. New York, 1914, just in case you missed it. The Mormons think that he's a god, that, that, that man can evolve into a god. And so the scribes and Pharisees are asking a good question here. Who is this guy making these statements? Who is Jesus, really, this is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceives their thoughts, he answers them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... He said to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Let me ask you this, which is easier to say? Of course it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. You could go into the spa tonight on your way home and say, your sins are forgiven. You might get a couple of looks, but they might just say, well, thanks very much. There's no way of proving it. It's an internal thing. But if you were to go into the spa and you meet someone who is maybe in a wheelchair and say, rise up and walk, 
that's a lot harder to say because the evidence is going to be external and everyone can see whether he did or did not heal that person. And so Jesus says, look, it's the easiest thing to say in the world. But actually, both things are impossible to say unless you're God. Only God can say your sins are forgiven. Only God can say to someone who is healed, who, who needs healed, and say you are healed. One points to the other. And so Jesus says, look, just in the same way that he said to Peter and the fish, if I can do this with the fish, imagine what I can do. He says to the Pharisees and he says to the scribes around him, if I can say to this man, rise up and walk. If I can fix the external, if I can do the thing that no other man can do, imagine what I can do for the soul. Imagine what I could do for the thing that really matters. One points to the other. The physical miracle pointed to a spiritual miracle. So he says, watch this, guys. Get up and walk. And he did. If I can do that, I can forgive sins. And here's what I love. Just as we close, let us ask ourselves the question the Pharisees then were asking. Who is this guy who claims he can forgive sins? My answer is, He's the guy who can forgive sins. He's the one who can do what no one else can do for you. He's the one who gave the greatest payday to a fishing businessman, but that man walked away from the money and chose him over it all. He's the one who can come alongside the sick and diseased and those who have no hope and bring a total change in circumstances. And so because of who he is, when he says, your sins are forgiven. You can believe that he can do that. I wonder, is there people and they're happy enough just to kind of float through it and say, listen, this is who I am. I, I'm kind of just going to say, well, you know, if, if God can kind of bless me along the way, help me along the way. But forgiveness, I, I can't, no. That's not for me. That's not part of it. Trust me when I say, he can take away your sins. My time is well up. Robert, if you don't mind, we'll just close in prayer. And then we'll go down to the uh, hall for some supper. Let's pray.